Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see, we see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but it's what, what is beyond sushi? What we hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is David Kinch, who is a chef owner of Maresa in Los Gatos, California. David won the James Beard Awards Best Chef Pacific in 2010, and the Maresa has three Michelin stars and has been named one of the best world's 50 best restaurants by Restaurant Magazine. And you can find a lot of Japanese influence on his, David's menu. So, today we'll talk about his passion for Japanese cuisine, his experience working at a restaurant in Japan, how he expresses seasonally like Kaiseki cuisine on his plates, and much, much more.、Um, but quickly before we start,、uh, Heritage Network is a non profit organization, and、uh, we need your support. So, please go to our website,、uh, heritageheritagenetwork.org, and then、uh, become a member. Thank you. And,、uh, Hello, David. Welcome to Japanese. Well, thank you. Okay, so first of all,、uh, for listeners who have not been to Marisa, can you tell us what kind of restaurant Marisa is?、Uh, yeah,、um, Manresa is、uh, in Los Gatos, California, which is、uh, in the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's about one hour south of San Francisco,、uh, close to San Jose, close to the Pacific Ocean.、Um, mm. It's kind of in the heart of Silicon Valley. Right.、Uh, bedroom, which is kind of a A strong customer base for us, a regular,、uh, the local customer base.、Um, up above us are beautiful mountains that go down to the sea. They're covered with、uh, small family owned wineries. It's one of the oldest wine growing regions in, in California, so it's great to be a part of that、mm-hmm. and be surrounded by that.、Um, the restaurant is,、um, I think, a real product of not only who we are, but where we are. We work with local products. Uh, we try to create、uh, something that is、uh, symbolic of where we're at, this special corner that we feel profoundly blessed to be, be near with. And,、mm. uh, we try to do a, a, food, that,、uh, a food and cuisine that、uh, is reflective of who we are.、Mm. Okay, and you opened it in、uh, 2002. July of 2002, correct. Right, so 14 years. Yeah, 15 years is our anniversary next year. Oh, yeah, wow. That's a big, big、right. year for us. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay, and、uh, so how did you get into cooking?、Uh, I was growing up in New Orleans and、uh, I started working in restaurants after school jobs, flexible hours, that sort of thing. And、uh, New Orleans is a great, great place to fall in love with food and, and restaurant culture.、Um, mm. I don't think I'd be a cook if I hadn't spent time、uh, living in New Orleans.、Yeah. So I'm very grateful for that.、Uh, and uh, I, st- I started originally、uh, in the dining room.、Uh, I ended up Being enamored with the art of cooking and, and wanting to learn to cook, I switched over to the kitchen and、uh, went to culinary school.、Um, 
moved back to New Orleans for a bit, uh, came to New York, spent some time in Europe, and I've been in California since 1989. Mm, right. And... Uh so before you opened the Marisa in 2002, you worked at uh, many great restaurants around the world, including New York, San Francisco, France, Germany, Spain, and Japan. And I'd like to ask you about the experience in Japan. But first, um, I heard you worked at uh, the Quilted Job in New York, which is now closed, but uh, it, which earned uh, the New York Times four-star rating. And I heard that the chef owner, Barry Wine, menu was influenced by Japanese cuisine. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us about your experience at uh, the Quilted Draft? Sure. I mean, uh, I, the Quilted Draft was a, bit, was a big influence on me. Uh, not only the culture in the kitchen, but the food they were doing at that time. Um, back then in the 1980s, uh, fine dining was uh, in New York was dominated by a lot of French restaurants. It was, mm -hmm. it was exclusively a French Restaurant town on the high end, and the uh, the Quilted Giraffe was an unapologetically mm. American restaurant. Uh, they 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 kind of threw away the the pretenses of, of being something they were not, and they mm. celebrated the fact that there wasn't any rules. And because uh, right. Barry me, used to be a lawyer, yeah, Barry's lawyer. He was self taught. Right. Um, um, he taught us to have opinions and and to to think about food in a different way and think about how dishes came together in a way that's um, maybe as quaint now or accepted for now was, was quite revolutionary, I thought, at the time. And certainly uh, for me, um, I got hired when I was returning from you know, working in France and, and you know, the traditions and the dogmatism you know, of, mm. of a, a classical <laughs> French cuisine. So it was a real eye-opening experience. And uh, the first couple of years I was there um, in the early 80s, um, um, it was it was an American restaurant, but it was certainly influenced by by, by European cuisines and, and and French to a certain extent. But uh, around 1985, 1986, can't quite remember when. Uh, uh, during our summer break, uh, when we closed for vacation, Barry and his family went to went to Japan. Mm. And uh, when he came back and we reopened. He was a changed person. He was a he, he was a he was a changed man. He came back with boxes and boxes of uh, plates, wow. and uh, you know a lot of the ceramic traditions of Japan. He he brought that back, and he immediately wanted us to start serving the food at the quilted on these plates. And back then, everything was round and white <laughs> and Limoges and and and, and bone china. That, that's what people did around town. That's mm -hmm. what was expected of fine dining. And, but he brought back these memories of, of, of the food that he had eaten, and he started to incorporate uh, it into the menu. And for all the cooks, it was, it was a, a real kind of slap to the face. Mm. Everything that we were doing, it literally happened after this trip and these, these boxes that came back. Um, we shortened cooking times, uh, you know, with, with meat and fish. We... Um, we served raw tuna, you know, in, in <laughs> sashimi-like slices mm. as opposed to like a tartare or something like this that was heavily seasoned. Mm. Um, we started using fresh wasabi. Um, uh, we started uh, soy sauce and, and shirodashis became a big part of, of, of what we were <laughs> using in the kitchen. And uh, uh, it was an amazing experience. And everybody caught the bug in the kitchen. Everybody was really into it. We started as cooks going out after work. We started uh, going to uh, 
this whole slew of Japanese restaurants that used to be in the uh, the West Forties. West Forties used mm-hmm. to be a lot of Boy, Japanese restaurants, uh... and uh, uh, I know there's a lot in the East Forties now. But in the West Forties, on the other side of Fifth Avenue, there was uh, all these slews of restaurants that were open late down in basements where the food was just the izakayas <laughs> that were were just really tremendous and. Uh, it affected all of us. We had a great time, and it affected me so much that when my time came for me to leave the Quilted Giraffe, uh, I wanted to go to Japan and work. Mm. And uh, we had set up some connections, and I, I left the restaurant with Barry's Blessing. Uh, oddly enough, I had three or four months before my position in Japan started, so I went to visit my family that had just moved to California and uh, in Saratoga, which is right down the road from Los Gatos, which turned out to be, you know, precursor of what was going to happen later. Mm. But um, uh, next stop was Japan. I left uh, New York to go work and live in Japan. Right. So, well, you cannot just go, right? So, what, how did it happen? Um, it happened through a, a regular customer at the Quilted Giraffe, who uh, um, is a Japanese gentleman who. Uh, had businesses both in New York and San Francisco and and in Japan Mm. and uh, he had a hotel and he had a western style restaurant there and uh, he needed a chef he had a chef who was there now but he was leaving to come back to the United States and for me uh, it was an opportunity you know I, I wasn't going to learn Japanese food for me it was more about becoming immersed and living somewhere else mm-hmm. and being uh, becoming immersed in in in, in the, the culture in this new part of the world that I'd be living in and learning as much as I could from it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right, and it's not just enough, on the plate, but uh, the mindset. Of course, of mm-hmm. course. And, you know, you, you're young, you want to, new experiences, and uh, it's the time to do it. It's time <laughs> to do it. And uh, funnily enough, it wasn't in Tokyo, it was in Fukuoka, which <laughs> was was uh, a little bit off the beaten path. Right, so Fukuoka. Largest city on Kyushu. It's mm-hmm, very south. Yeah, the southernmost of the four major islands, and uh, it was a great experience. It was uh, uh, it was a complete immersion. Mm. You know, the staff <laughs> the staff was all Japanese, uh, um, and I got exposed to a lot. Everything from late night uh, street food and stalls, mm. all the way to uh, some really spectacular kaiseki meals in Kyoto, taking the train up and and, yeah, and eating great meals. So it was exactly what I wanted. It was it was it was an immersion in mm. learning many many different things. Right. So how long did you stay there? I was there for about five months. Oh wow, that's mm-hmm. a very intense yeah, culinary yeah. and cultural. It was, it, yes, it was a really great experience. It was you know I, I was going to stay a little bit longer. It was cut short due to circumstances beyond my control. But I came back to uh, I didn't want to return to New York, uh, so I settled back in California where I had family. Allowed me to get my feet back on the ground, and I started working mm. again. But I never really lost, you know, mm. what I found. Okay, I just wanted to ask: uh, Is any cultural shock in the kitchen or something? Because you're surrounded by Japanese chefs, and the uh, farm was totally new to you, right? So, well, it's funnily enough, it was. Um, uh, I had staged in. I was staged. I had staged in Europe, and ended up staging again in Europe uh, after returning back from Japan. And every kitchen I worked at, um, there was always one Japanese cook <laughs> in the kitchen who was staging as well. Mm-hmm. And um, they were there to learn, you know, classic French food or working in French restaurants. And um, they were always meticulous. Uh, they were hard workers. Their heads were down. And they had, obviously, the sharpest knives in the kitchen. You know, they, <laughs> they, had, they had knives that... Uh, 
made everything else that we all had very, very primitive by comparison. Mm. <laughs> so, and and uh, 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 they were going back. They, they were working and they were going back and, 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 and cooking back in Japan, mm. you know, French and Italian food. I think a couple months ago, I think there's an article in New York Times that the Japanese, how uh, French restaurants are dominated by Japanese cooks now. Yeah, there's, there's a, a slew of great restaurants right now that are cooking in a very contemporary French style, uh, as French as any Frenchman could do, too, mm. you know, in, in honor of the tradition, doing a great job. The Aye. food's excellent. Yeah, they, they go probably more religiously traditional to whatever the master taught them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then preserve, instead of American mindset, is to come back and then you have to create something new by yourself. Yes. Right? So that's interesting. Um, but, you know, what is the essence of, uh, um, you know, your learning from Japanese Kitchen uh, well, culture. I was, you know, in terms of food, I was fascinated by the purity of, of the food. Food tasted of what it was. Um, uh, there was a simplicity to it, but it was a complex simplicity. As we know, there's a, there's a lot of effort that's put into making mm-hmm. something look effortless and very, very simple. Um, uh, the style was so deceptively simple that it became obvious that um, the quality of the ingredients was paramount to the success of a dish. You had no place to hide. There wasn't a thick sauce. Mm. There wasn't a lot of things on the plate to hide things. It was, you kind of put yourself out on a limb mm. that uh, this is what I have and how this just dish is going to be judged is it's by the quality of the ingredients. And what drives quality of ingredients is seasonality. Mm. Um, and so it forces you, it's a style that forces you to cook with the seasons more mm. than anything else. And, uh, of course, I was fascinated by this. The other thing was the, um, you know, not to start talking about umami just yet, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the lack of fats. You mm. know, everything, everything we taught, were taught in, you know, in Western cuisines was that fat is flavor. You know, the three families of fat. You had olive oil, you had butter, and you had pork fat. And, you know, most Western cu- cuisines can be defined mm. by by these three fats. And in Japan, uh, it wasn't about fat. Um, they had all these great flavors. Things w- could be explosive and really, really balanced in flavor. Uh, but it wasn't because of their reliance on, on fat. And I wanted to know how they did that. That, mm. that I found intriguing, especially being in California and the way people ate in California mm. as opposed to the East Coast, which was still kind of you know, being driven by a European model on what fine dining was. And um, uh, that's what I chose to explore and to try and figure out. Mm. Right. So interesting. Um, so you, you're going to say something about umami? That's the replacement of the fat, you think? Yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do. I mean, obviously dashi. You know, it's, mm. uh, dashi is, is, is the key to almost everything that's done in, 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 in Japanese food and... Mm. and um, you know, dashi is, uh, you know, it's that complex, that simple complexity of, uh, uh, that complex simplicity, excuse me, of, um, of uh, umami, creating a synergy, you know, to where something can be, not have a lot of fat, but can be very satiating. It can mm. make you full, it can make you satisfied, uh, yet, you know, the ability not to feel leaden down and to continue to go about your day, being alert by mo- in mind, alert in body, and, uh, um, 
learning how to make correct dashi, understanding uh, the principle of umami and amino acids mixed with uh, the glycemic acids with the with the the, the kombu mm-hmm. is. Uh, it's pretty fascinating concepts. Right. Because there's, there's a synergy. If you have a kombu and if you have a bonito, there's mm-hmm. a synergy. Mm-hmm. Right? That kind of thing. Right. Well, I was speaking with uh, the food scientist from Japan yesterday, and he said, as a key of Japanese cuisine, if you have a dashi soup at the beginning, and then the umami stays in your palate. So that's the... Um, makes per- makes perfect sense. <laughs> Something else I, I I thought was fascinating too, uh, and different, and it's, it's really interesting is the use of bitterness uh, at the beginning of a meal as well. You know, a lot of times we like to serve things that are salty mm. here in, in America. You know, maybe to make people thirstier or feeling you know to to get the palate going. But it's actually kind of the opposite. I've always noticed that. In a lot of meals in Japan, especially kaiseki meals, that will start with something usually like with a green, a bitter green. But, mm. you know, there's an emphasis on bitterness and a complete lack of sugar uh, because bitterness is really the key to mm. enlivening the appetite and preparing the appetite for a meal that's coming. Right. And uh, um, that's something that we try to use mm. is, is starting with something that's not salty, but right. something that has bitter in nature. I recently read an article that it says... Uh, uh, in Western cuisine, you eat a bitter salad, like uh, Italian or something, at, at the end. And then by doing that, you crave for more sugar. So you, you tend to overeat the no, dessert. Entirely possible. <laughs> entirely possible. Um, you know, I mean, we use dashi at Manresa. Uh, I mean, you know, for me at Manresa, um, it's, I don't want things to be overtly Japanese in any kind of way. You know, if we use a, a fundamental tenet or principle whether it's uh, based on umami or uh, a course progression or the way we use a particular ingredient, it's important to me that it doesn't seem like, oh, we're doing a Japanese dish, but we incorporate it into the style that we do. You don't really know it's there unless you really, really dig deep. Mm. Uh, you know, because what we're trying to do is make food that tastes good and, right. and makes the guests happy. Mm. Right. But it sounds like, uh, you know, as far as I've got your book, and then each dish looks like more simplified, less is, less is more kind of approach and presentation. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's, uh, I would imagine, some kaiseki mine. Yeah, I think so. I, um, You know, dishes tend to be small, not because we want to serve a lot of smaller courses, but, you know, um, you want kind of a less is more rule, you know, after a couple of bites. Mm. You know, there starts to be a little bit of a fatigue with the, with the familiar flavors and mm-hmm. time to change things up. Right. So what kind of uh, dishes do you have, uh, the Japanese-influenced dishes do you serve? Well, we usually do a raw dish of some sort. We usually do a, you know, whether it's a crudo or a sashimi type of dish. Um, we use um, uh, not much fat right now. We have a... Uh, a, a garden dish, a salad dish that uh, has a lot of bitter proponents that serve very early in the meal mm. as well. Um, we are doing a soup. We are doing a consomme that is like a chicken consomme, but it actually is dashi-based. Uh, we have some kombu and bonito in along with uh, the, the roasted chicken bones. Mm. Uh, roasted chicken, especially the bones, has a very, very high natural umami, like mm. tomatoes and parmesan other Western ingredients. Right. Um, and then it has little dumplings that are flavored with the Okinawan black sugar mm-hmm. in it along with the vegetables, which is pretty interesting. It has abalone in it, too. It's, it's pretty interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to eat it right now. Well, that makes no. sense. I've never heard that, you know, the Japanese dashi mixed with uh, chicken 
stocks. It, it can be very, very good. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, let's take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about David's very unique and inspiring relationship with farms and uh, like Japanese kaiseki chefs. So please stay with us. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Taxstar, and this track is called Pianissimo Short. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from our studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, and my guest today is David Kent, who is the chef owner of Maresa in Los Gatos, California. And which has three mission star restaurants. And uh, okay, so one of the core elements of Japanese cuisine is seasonality, as you talked. And uh, Kaisek chefs say there are 24 seasons a year at their restaurants. Um, so in Kyoto,、uh, for example, many Kaisek chefs have close relationships with local farmers, and Manresa is known for beautiful seasonal dishes. So, what is your philosophy about seasons and ingredients at Manresa? Well, we,、um, we try to be as,、uh, obviously, we try to be、uh, as honored the seasons as much as we possibly can. California is you know, a little bit different, it's a little bit more Mediterranean. It's,、uh, we're more dry than wet,、mm-hmm. uh, than、uh, you know, a, a traditional spring, summer, winter, fall, even though we still do have that. And、um, we're very, very lucky in California. I think it's one of those special places. On the planet where we have great quality fish and meats, fruits and vegetables straight across the board,、um, a great glow- growing climate, and we also have the culture about growing、mm-hmm. and understanding the importance of the food that we put in our bodies.、Um, that said, seasonality wins on all fronts. Uh, uh, you serve something in season, not only is the product the best that it can possibly be, but it also tends to be the cheapest、mm. it's going to be because you're not importing it, you're not trucking it in, you're not flying it in. So it's a win win situation. People really don't have any excuse、mm. to not serve a menu that's seasonally based. Right. But,、um, like, you know, Kyoto Kaisek Chef 24 Seasons, I'm sure there's so many produce coming one <clears> after <throat> another. Yeah, I mean, it's not like.、Um, One day it's spring, then the next day it's summer. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not like a door opening and closing. There's,、mm-hmm. you know, there, things fade in and out.、Um, 
things uh, that you can have a couple products. You can have like asparagus and peas. They, people say they're both in springtime. Mm. Fact of the matter is, they're at very different parts of springtime. One one very very early, and another kind of mid to late. Mm. So, um, you know, this this concept of micro seasons, you know, twenty four seasons. It's uh, it's really about a starting, beginning, and end, and the phasing out. And then you throw in the vagaries of weather patterns. You know, where you have a you know. Not that much rain in the wintertime or a longer than usual summer. And it kind of throws things mm. a little bit differently. Right. So, um, so you work with farmers, right? So yes. it sounds like very close by. Yes. Everything, uh, you know, we, we either pick up ourselves or are delivered by, by the farms themselves. Wow. To the restaurants. <laughs> and, and, you know, we have, we have one menu. Uh, we don't need the diversity of product that we had maybe five years ago, but we need more of specific products that are in season. So mm. that's working out really good for us right now. Okay. So you can feature one um, item kind of themed menu like corn or... Very some. much so. And, mm. and that, that's, that goes a long way toward... That's, that's a big part of how we develop menus too. We don't necessarily think of dishes. We tend to have a great example of something that's in season in front of us. And we work backwards. That, I don't want to say backwards, but we kind of work from that as a starting point mm. into how the dish develops. Okay. So um, do you work, um, how do you work with the farmers? Do they bring you items or you ask in advance? Uh, we ask, we, we work with them on what's planted, what goes into the ground. Um, and, of course, they have ideas about things that they're passionate about growing. And uh, we try to be flexible and understand what, what they're working with. Mm. And uh, and and uh, that's part of the fun. There's not many things that we don't like working with. Mm, right. So so actually, they it's kind of a collaboration, right? Very much so. Mm, Very much so. That's interesting. It has to be. Right. And because so you're so close to them, I'm sure that you can, you know, like usually in the market or the bigger market through a food distribution company, you don't see that Michael season, right? No. No, you just see a box. Mm. You see a box or, you know, a plastic or cellophane sort of thing. <laughs> right. It's nice, to, it's nice to get things that are, you know, still a little bit dirty. The roots are dirty. Mm. Um, they're, they're not cold because they haven't seen refrigeration. You know, they've been picked in the morning and they're, they're packed and, and they're driven to the restaurants. And, mm. uh, it's, it's very special. It's an intangible one of those intangibles that make things right. great as opposed to good. Mm-hmm. Right. And I heard that it keeps you healthy because of a lot of good bacteria attached uh, to vegetables. Entirely possible. <laughs> right. Yeah, <it> sounds- <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so um, the the farms you work with, how far are they usually? Uh, the two that we're working with now, one is it's up on Summit Road, so it's about eight miles away. And the other one's on the other side of the hill up the coast a little bit, so it's about uh, 25 miles away from wow. the Wow. The dream of chefs, I think. It's, it's nice. It's right. nice. Okay. And is that why you have only one tasting menu? Because of uh, the flexibility? I think, well, it's um, we kind of... It's been an evol- It's been an evolution getting to the one menu. I mean, we used to have a couple menus in an a la carte, and it slowly got smaller and smaller. It, it, we became more focused on on, on particular dishes and the and the experience we were trying to create with guests. Uh, right now, uh, what we're, we want the menu to be just a, basically a distillation of what we feel is the best that we can do that day. Mm. Not only ambience and service, but the food, the product that's available, and the menu that we put together. 
Um, we have, uh, of course, in this day and age, restrictions and allergies are a big part of, uh, of you know, any restaurant's customer base. Mm-hmm. And we work very, very hard into not saying no, within reason, not saying no. So we're, we're always creating variations of dishes and or substitutions for that. Mm-hmm. So that keeps us busy. Right. I'm curious, though, like one day you found something like, oh, I don't know what to make out of this vegetable or something like that. No, I don't think that. That's <laughs> not, you know, it's a good team. We have a good team. We're, we're, we're inspired by where we are and what we work with. We're inspired by working with each other. It's good. And uh, it's a spirit of collaboration. And we all like going to work. We all, you know, are very passionate about what we do. Mm, okay. And earlier you said uh, you're proud of being a part of that Los Gatos area. Yeah, very right? much so. And I, I think it's important to state, too, you shouldn't be afraid of making mistakes. You know, mm. we all make mistakes. I think we all tend to learn from, you know, trial and error, working with the product when you're trying to create something new. Mm, right. And in Kyoto, um, they have a native vegetables called the Kyoyasai. It's about like 35 different types. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in Los Gatos, do you have any native produce, that kind of, um, such as terroir? Uh, native produce. Um, you know, what grows really well where we are are brassicas. We have cold nights. Mm. Uh, we have cool nights. About the, you know, the ocean is very tempering influence. So warm days, very strong Sundays. Followed by cool evenings. It's one of the reasons why wine grapes do grow mm. so well there. And for this kind of product, uh, things like uh, garlic and broccoli, artichokes, uh, Brussels sprouts, um, all different kinds of lettuces. Those have always been the um, you know the, the 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 iconic crops of the central coast of California. Mm, right. So um, I'm kind of getting jealous because you have everything, and you know. <laughs> well, we don't have everything. We don't, we, we don't have everything, but uh, it it could be worse. Right. Be. Yeah. For instance, uh, you know, uh, Blue Hill Stone Barns by mm-hmm. Dunbar, they grow everything by themselves, which is the dream of chef or in That's restaurant business, amazing. That's right? Pretty amazing. But instead, most of us go to Union Square Market, and then you cannot get everything mm-hmm. from the market. So um, what do you think is the uh, importance of uh, the relationship between chefs and farmers in uh, more than... Uh, well, it, it helps to be connected. It certainly helps to be connected. You know, uh, chefs can use their relationships with farmers to be a source of inspiration mm. uh, for not only what they're producing now, but, you know, in anticipating what's going to be, uh, what's going to be growing later. Mm. Um, farmers... You know, being a farmer is, is tough. It's a, it's a hard profession, mm. and uh, yeah, but I also the impression I get too can be very very satisfying. And I think to them it is it gives them a certain sense of um, security and perhaps uh, a good feeling knowing that uh, uh, what they're growing is going to be sold. Mm. It's going to be used and treated with respect. That it's not all for naught. Right. Well, it sounds like, uh, as far as I, I heard from you, you encourage farmers to try new things. It's kind of mutual support system that you have. Yeah, it's we can all benefit. Mm. So are there many chefs in West Coast doing it? Um, I don't know any off the top of my head, you know, mm. kind of wrapped up in what we do. Mm. I hope it's going to be the direction. That would be great. Right. 
Okay. And uh, so you had a fire at Marissa in 2014, unfortunately, but I heard you gained a new perspective from the experience. So could you tell us about that? Um, yeah, the, we, we had a fire in July of 2014. We reopened in uh, January of 2015. And um, looking back at it now, um, you know, I thought we did a very good job in utilizing that time. Um, we were very, very busy when the restaurant was closed. I think we were busier than we have ever been, mm. uh, certainly in the last three months going before opening. I think chefs who tend to be naturally curious and, and, and concerned about what they do and concerned about the guest experience, you know, we're always thinking, we're always restless. We're thinking of ideas about how we can improve ourselves and, and improve the guest experience. And a lot of times there just simply isn't enough hours in the day with everything, mm. just day-to-day -day operations. And the closure from the fire and during the rebuilding process gave us an opportunity, me and, and, and the team, the managers, uh, we had a chance to think through every step of the guest experience from them entering the restaurants, uh, what they see, what the greeting is, through the ambiance and the service, the food, all the way up to when we present a check and uh, we say goodnight to them at the door. Uh, every little step is, you know, do we make eye contact? Are our smiles genuine? Is this really the kind of plate that we want to serve on this? Is it awkward to eat with this? Mm. You know, after they eat this course, where are they going to put the fork? You know, <laughs> we had we actually had the opportunity to think about all these things, and we did, and we did, and we tried to we tried to incorporate uh, what we learned about ourselves back in when we reopened. Mm. That's great. So there was a reason, maybe. The <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't. I hope that wasn't the reason, but. Uh, um, um, I think it was a good use of time. Right. Yeah. So that was the point. Uh, it was uh, 12 years, so it's a good time to review. It's like everybody uh, um, used to close six months. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, in, in the restaurant business, that's that's certainly middle-aged. You know, if you're around 12 years, that's we're going to be 15 years old next year. That's that's a lifetime in the restaurant mm. business. Right, and you just uh, re-earned three Michelin stars for 2017. Uh, yes, we, we got, uh, we were awarded three stars last year, 2016. Right. So, congratulations. Thank you. Right. And uh, so, um, how many times have you been back to Japan since you came back from the job in Fukuoka? Uh, I didn't go for a period of years because I was working and, and that sort of thing. But starting in 2008, I've been going back once or twice a year ever since. Wow. Yeah. I'm actually going next Friday. So. Wow. <laughs> So, um, but when you go, uh, what kind of restaurants do you go to? Uh, I like to try a little bit of everything. You know, it's, I'm not, you know, I love sushi, but I don't need to eat sushi five, five days in a row. <laughs> I don't think anybody would. I try to bounce the experience out, uh, try new things, um, both high end and low end. Uh, I'm going to Hokkaido on this trip for the first time. I'm really mm. excited about that. Um, That's a whole other bounty. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Hold. Uh, that's one of the great things about Japan. A lot of people don't realize is um, uh, how regional it is. Mm. Um, uh, you can be uh, every prefecture. You know, seems to have its own specialty, its own particular style of sake. Uh, they make. Uh, 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 Yuba in a different way than maybe, mm. and I remember having this conversation asking about a product with a chef, and he'd never heard of it, 
And I found it really hard to believe that he hadn't heard of it. But then he was talking to another chef's friend, and he was kind of like, oh, yeah, that, you know, they, they do that in Nagoya, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And, and I was like, well, that's, that's only 150 miles away from here. Mm. But, and it's kind of like France. You know, the difference between Provence and, uh, and Brittany is only, you know, it's, it's just a couple hours drive. And uh, uh, how marked different what they drink, what they eat, the cheeses that they make, mm. how different they are. Right. And uh, you have the same thing in Japan. You have this marked, complex regionality that if you really want to dig into Japanese food, and not just be in Tokyo and not just being, you know, the, 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 ur, the urbane environment of Tokyo and the classical chakaiseki in, in Kyoto. But if you go to, uh, you know, Kagoshima mm. or you uh, go to outside of Kobe and along the, the, uh, the Sea of Japan side, Kanazawa, you go up to the Rishiri Islands off the northern coast. Of, you know, it's it's. You'll, you'll encounter food that is unmistakably Japanese, but also completely different from not only anything you've ever had before, mm. but what you had the day before when you were someplace else. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And then I think their mindset is you have to preserve something traditional, and they have a mission. Very much so. Mm. And I think, there's a, of course, Kyoto is a big part of that, uh, you know, and, and preserving, you know, what they perceive as, you know, the cultural traditions. But I've noticed, especially in Tokyo, I've noticed in the past eight or ten years, they're really starting to, you know, I don't want to say experiment, but embracing outside ideas and and using them very naturally mm. uh, in, in food that is still Japanese. I think that's great. Mm. Do you have uh, any example of that? Um, well, um, um, you know, there's some chefs. Uh, there's a chef at a restaurant called Lefer Restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Shinobu Name, I think mm-hmm. his name is. And, you know, he spent time uh, cooking in England and France and the United States, and he's gone back. And his food is Western, but it's also Japanese at the same time. It's hard to describe, but the way he uses the product mm. um, on the plate, it's really fantastic. It's more of a feel, more of an, in, an intangible kind of feel to list exactly what's happening. Mm. Um I think it's great. I think it's great that in the past 10 years we've seen a tremendous amount of Westerners and Western cooks. It seems like a door's been opened mm. and um, uh, more people are going to explore. And, I, and naturally you have an exchange of ideas. Right. Uh, Interesting. It makes sense. Right. Because I think it used to be like we, we talked earlier, you know, Japanese chefs work outside the country, come back, and then worship what he learned. Uh, I, I'm... I, you know, it's a, it's a generalization, but my feeling is that the, the best French restaurants and the best Italian restaurants in the world outside of France and Italy are probably in Japan. <laughs> mm. it's, it's, it's hard to argue with that. Mm. Right. But then sounds like all those uh, chefs conference, those things may be helping to open their mindset. Very much so. Right. Very much so. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny, uh, but, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if you wanted to travel to Japan and explore and eat, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of reference, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in English. There wasn't a lot of reference, and it's daunting, and the language, and, and, and the alphabet, uh, you know, especially you get outside of Tokyo, you know, you get lost really, really quickly. <laughs> and so it's daunting. You had to make a real effort to mm-hmm. explore, as opposed to maybe being on a tour or something like this. And... Something happened. Something changed. I think, you know, I think uh, 
the Michelin Guide of Japan being published in English was a was a big deal because you had uh, great restaurants where they listed addresses, phone numbers, hour opened, mm. and a picture of the doorway, which right. was always you know <laughs> you know finding the place is half the battle. So all of a sudden you had this you know something kind of stripped away the veneer of the uh, of the daunting aspect of going to eat at these restaurants. It mm. changed a lot. And, of course, with the Internet, you see a lot of things online now, too. Tabalog in English and that sort of thing where right. people can explore and get a little bit deeper into the food. And people are obviously liking what they're finding. Right. By the way, um, the first Michelin, Kyoto, was rejected by uh, Kyoto chefs. So. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but not anymore. Right. Yeah, they started <laughs> yeah. to realize how valuable it is. Yeah. Right. So, and you, you said you're going to Japan for, I heard that you're for the Rei Chateau Chef Congress? Yes. So, it's gonna, what is it? Uh, well, Relay and Chateau is a, a restaurant and hotel organization started in France. Um, the world's best restaurants and hotels. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a pretty, it's a pretty prestigious organization. We're, we're really honored to be a part of it. We were voted in last year. And every year, all the properties uh, get together in, mm. in a different location. And this year, it happens to be Tokyo. So uh, wow. that's where we're going over there. And it's going to be great because um, uh, though there are a lot of Relay and Chateau properties in Asia, and there are some, some beautiful ryokans that are part of uh, Relay and Chateau, uh, for a lot of people and a lot of the property owners who are gathering there, um, they are realizing what uh, Japan, the art of hospitality in Japan, can offer to their businesses, mm. and also the power of the Japanese traveler. You know, uh, you know, Japanese. In, I'm, in California, we have a tremendous amount of, of, of Japanese guests coming through. You know, we're, mm. we're pretty close, relatively speaking. I mean, San Francisco is closer to Tokyo than it is to Paris. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know. Japanese travelers that we see, you know, they're they're educated, they're sophisticated, um, uh, they're well traveled, um, they they know what they want, mm. and they're great guests. So I think the reason why Relay and Chateau is in uh, in Tokyo this year is is to to continue that relationship mm -hmm. uh, between between. Um, uh, Japan and and the hotel guests. Mm. So you're planning to do something outside the Congress? I'm going to Hokkaido. Going, oh. up, going up to Sapporo for a couple of days. Okay, right. It's a skiing season coming up. Yeah, I won't be skiing. I'm going to be eating. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. So I look forward to your report. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what's your plan? Um, well, it's it's a fairly short trip. We're going to go over and work for three days, and then a couple of days up. Uh, that's pretty much it. Mm. But nights are free. We have a couple of nice meals play uh, planned out. Mm. Um, I'm visiting a couple of um, uh, favorites, and I'm going to a couple of places I haven't been to before that have been recommended. Um, my favorite bar in the world is there. It's in Tokyo, so I go. Wow. A place called Judupesh. I don't know. It's in. It's in Roppongi. Really? It's very, very nice. Yeah. Oh, wow. I have to check that out. Great, great whiskey collection. Mm. Yeah. Including Japanese whiskey. Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay. So, uh, yeah, please come back and talk more about uh, your experience in Japan. I'd love to. All you have to do is invite me. <laughs> I will, definitely. So, thank you for joining us today, David. Thank you very much, Akiko. Appreciate it. So, listeners, if you'd like to know more about David's activities, um, please visit maresarestaurant.com. That's maresa, M-A-N-R-E-S-A, restaurant.com. 
And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org. And Japaneats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays, always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher podcasts. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. And today's show is made possible by Corin, and our engineer is、uh, Pierre Bienemet. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.